Thank you very much. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Daniel Rosenthal. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to The Shed for the first of the National Theatre's Scene Changes platforms, a series alongside the National's 50th anniversary looking at broad issues in the development, the evolution of theatre since 1963. And today we're going to be looking at theatre architecture, new builds and modern refurbs. Uh, on my right, Keith Williams, the architect whose recent projects include the Marlowe and Unicorn Theatres. And uh, next to him, Gillian Darley, architecture writer whose books include Villages of Vision. Next to her is Richard Pilbro, the theatre consultant and lighting designer who was co-designer of the extraordinary Olivier Theatre Drum Revolve here at the National. And next to him, the architect Steve Tompkins, who's currently working on NT Future, the redevelopment of the National, and Chichester Festival Theatre's redevelopment. I thought I'd begin with a broad question, <coughs> with a quotation from none other than Peter Brook. In 1996-97, when the National was having its previous redevelopment, which was known as the Master Plan, Peter Brook wrote as follows. A theatre lives in the present. No production is designed to last. In an ideal world, theatres would be demolished and rebuilt in every decade. A wise architect recognises that a theatre must evolve like an airport. So, that is the first question. <laughs> to what extent would each of you agree, disagree, uh, take issue with Peter Brook? Perhaps we start, Gillian, with you and this notion of theatres evolving after they have been opened. Of course, I mean, yes, evolving and very often building on memory and history. And I think I'm here because I um, spent some time looking at Elizabeth Scott's contribution to the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre. And the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre, in fact, was a new build because the previous theatre had burned down, so she looked at it. Uh, extraordinary story. She didn't have the vote when she won this competition. Uh, you know, she was, she was just a woman in her late 20s and we're talking about the late 20s of this of the last century. And um, when it came to the point of Bennett's starting again with that theatre, there was a very sort of, um, there'd been a, a checkered history, uh, there'd been thoughts of sweeping it all away, but actually I think the resulting combination of what the, the new theatre, which is essentially in all technical and uh, possible ways, is a new theatre. But it has a very strong, uh, the foyer, the detailing, and some wonderful sort of um, spreads of, of, of design, yeah. external and internal, which have been retained. I think it's, that, that's a lovely combination. It slightly throws Peter Hall's uh, statement askew, but not so much. So, so do you think Elizabeth Scott, if she came back, she would rec how much of her own theatre would she recognise now? Well, I think she'd, she'd, she'd recognise that the theatre she designed was, it, it was being changed continually in her lifetime, so she'd certainly understand that the theatre as it stood was not, in the end, fit for purpose. She wasn't experienced enough. But that it, you know, was a flagship and it remains so. so Thank you. Yeah. Steve, bearing in mind your, your preoccupations with, with Chichester and with the National, mm. how would you respond to, to the I th idea? I think perhaps uh, the last 50 years, in a way, re represent the, the struggle between architectural and theatre voices to somehow find common ground, to find a common language, a common <coughs> philosophy, 
all the way through the, the, the stories of the development of, of buildings like the National, certainly what one hears of constant, perhaps miscommunications, misunderstandings. Architects are trained, our, our DNA is to resolve problems, is, is to attain perfection in some ways. Theatre people are much more interested in the impermanent, in the provisional, in spaces which leave stories unfinished, which leave loose ends. We, we find it much more difficult as a profession. It's almost like a, a humiliating badge of failure to, to find loose ends in, in an architectural project. And yet often those are the very things which theatre people come and seize upon and find nourishing and fertile ground for making theatre. And so I, I think in many ways uh, we've, we've spent 50 years trying to find a common language and philosophy with which to work together. And, and I'm, I'm personally quite optimistic that, we've, that we're making progress and that, that we're, we're seeing the results of that, that long debate finding fruit in, in, in more recent generations of buildings which are coming through now. Mm. Keith, how would you pick up on that? Well, I suppose um, I'd, I'd echo... I'd echo what Steve said to a, to a certain degree, but I, I, I'd also touch on airports to begin with because I think they might have changed a little bit since Peter Crook wrote that. I mean, they now seem to be mainly... We need to, we need to project. I'm airport, sorry, so. thank you for that. Um, is, that is that a bit better? I think your mic is more No, no. We're, we're speaking we're naturally, yeah. so... <laughs> <laughs> clearly it's being the, mic the microphones are for, uh, uh, for uh, recording for online rather than for live, so yeah. we will have to project as well as... Yeah, we will, sure. thank you. Thank you, sorry. Anyway, I'll go again. We um, need that to train them, clearly. <laughs> yes. um, I think that um, airports might have changed slightly since Peter Brook wrote that, 96? 97. 97. Yeah. Um, in that, like many of us, have been to many, many around the world, and they mostly seem to be shopping centres with um, aeroplanes attached. Um, so I suppose what Brook might have meant is that, that they have evolved enormously. Can theatre buildings do that. I, I, there, is this, there is this strange thing that, that the process of making a building is very expensive, it's generally very slow, and it has a sort of permanence, uh, a physical permanence, but it also has a sort of cultural and financial permanence. You know, people have spent many millions of pounds creating a building and they're not apt to pay for it to be torn down five minutes later on, on some other idea. Um, Whereas theatre, I guess, is fast, it's immediate. Um, if it's successful, it'll run for many years. If it fails, it might run for rather less. Um, but it can move very quickly and can respond. Can we create architecture that does that? Probably we can't. Probably what we can do and try to do from time to time is to, is to make space, the theatrical space, that can be, can be adapted and, and modified. Um, the appetite, I guess, for those that fund these things is probably less than the theatre industry who might demand it. So I think therein lies a dichotomy. Hmm. Richard, from your perspective as a, as a consultant, does that mean that you're called in between the client, the theatre uh, producers and owners deciding we need to redevelop and then the architect coming in? Are you the middleman, so to speak? And if you are, what do they ask you? <coughs> Very often we are the middleman. I suppose we're translating, or we're attempting to translate the world of theatre into the world of architecture. I mean, that's our, our role. Uh, unfortunately, there's a fundamental truth that's already been expressed that the world of theatre is changing all the time. So I would agree with Mr. Brooke profoundly. 
And if you come to my autopsy, the National Theatre is going to be written inside <laughs> my chest here. Um, I find it ironic that we're redeveloping the Cottesloe, which is far and away the best theatre in this building, and we're <laughs> unable to redevelop the Olivia and the Littleton, which are magnificent in a certain way, but are both deeply flawed theatres. And that's a strange dichotomy. The arts change. Architecture has great difficulty in changing. In the good old days, you burnt them down every five years. <laughs> but if you didn't, if you didn't, you got the master carpenter and you said, cut that bit off, changed it. And we can't do that in the day of concrete. So I'm looking forward to a, a thermic lance that can cut us around more quite easily. But there, there's an interesting anecdote, I suppose, which illustrates those two strands. When this building was first being built, um, the famous director Michael Elliott um, stood on the parapet of the bridge looking at the construction site and, and, and he mused in a, a radio broadcast which he made a, a, a few weeks later whether actually this is the right way that we should be building our theatres. Shouldn't we be doing something which is more light-footed, more provisional? Should we be saddling our children and grandchildren with um, theatres which could only be adapted by a bomb or a thermic lance. What, isn't there something which is more aligned to the language and the quick-footedness mm. of theatre making? And, and, and I think at that point, cer certainly for me, there, where, there was a divergent strand which, which began, and, and Michael Elliott then went on to design the Manchester Royal Exchange Theatre, which is probably one of the most extraordinary and successful um, adaptable lightweight spaces, even though it hasn't actually changed very much, its language is much, perhaps much more aligned to the process of set building and, and, and theatre craft. And I think from, from those two um, directions, the National on the one hand and the Manchester Royal Exchange on the other, a lot of the last 50 years of, of theatre building has sprung. Mm. Yeah. I was looking at um, John O'Donnell's um, little film about the lyric Belfast, which was on the Sterling um, list last year. Mm. And I, uh, he makes a very interesting analogy with the, the language of theatre, the house, front of house, and so on. And he talks it through in a sort of domestic sense. And he, of course, is talking about the user, the audience, me, um, yeah. and, and all those people who, yes, we've all changed, we all have different requirements up to a point but yeah. we also have an idea about what theatre is so all this flexibility could end up leaving your user sort of outside or maybe there are mm. many different strands and you know the utterly provisional you know what you do in the roundhouse mm. is a very different story maybe maybe the end user will come back to you after this idea of the client um, architect relationship because I think one can argue that in performance terms in terms of what happens on the stages in the last 50 years <laughs> the defining relationship of British theatre is the playwright director relationship by the same token the importance of the architect client relationship can't be uh, stated too often and therefore for the panel what is your experience of that relationship particularly because theatre directors are used to getting their own way, casting, <laughs> design, etc. And therefore, is that architect-client relationship very different on a theatre than it might be, say, for a housing association or a local authority? Maybe, Steve, you can start us off on that. Oh, very, very much different. I, I, th I think um, 
in, in my experience, unique in, in, in terms of the intensity of the relationship that, that is required um, <coughs> and also is, is almost inevitable as, as you get into the detail of, of a building like a theatre. It's so complex um, and it's so subjective in many ways that unless you're almost... It's almost like a love affair. Um, it's, it's more professional than that, of course, but you, you, I think you have to go beyond the requirements of the purely professional in order for unexpected or beautiful results to come out of that process. I mean, I've, I've been in, incredibly lucky to, to work with people like Stephen Doldry at the, at the Royal Court, Nick Heitner here, David Lamb at the Young Vic, um, Josie Rourke at the, at the Bush and the Donmar. So, you know, these are exceptional individuals in their own right, and, and it would be criminally negligent not to draw on that amount of, of talent and and skill and passion in order to, to develop these buildings. I, I think the more problematic moment comes when, when, for example, one's working with a local authority client or, or a large committee or a whole raft of um, funders and risk managers and project managers and benefactors, all of whom, in, in, you know, to a greater or lesser extent and probably understandably would like to be the architect and have trenchant views on, on architecture. So the, the, the political management of, of, a, of a group that large, whilst protecting a vision which, which has to be single-minded, you know, every, every theatre has to be the result of single-minded, passionate vision. Otherwise, it's nothing, in, in my view. And there are many forms of passion, therefore there are many forms of theatre. And that's, to me, that's all well and good. But the key thing, I think, is to find the intensity of the relationship and to protect it at all costs. It's kind of you know, you and the artistic director have the American football and it's everybody else's job is to stave off the people that are going to knock the ball out of your hand and you've mm. just got to get there. Mm. And so you become, you become obsessed, you become single-minded, you become antisocial and unreasonable. And that's essential, in my view. <laughs> Keith, how would you... Um, yeah, I, think, I mean, the, the, the relationship with the artistic director is absolutely, absolutely critical. Um, when I... The very first theatre that I worked on was Birmingham Rep, and which was a, a refurbishment. And I was feeling my way into working on theater architecture and making new buildings, or in that case, refurbishing buildings. And we'd spent some weeks working away, and we created our first draft masterpiece, you know, as you do. And, um, and so we remember distinctly presenting this to the artistic director and a very small committee and I, I was really quite pleased with the designs, and there was a sort of silence at the end when I'd finished. And the artistic director got up and started pacing the room and quoting Brecht. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, you know, these theatre people, they're so bloody clever, and I've got no way of engaging with them because I'm talking about pictures which they, and drawings which they don't really understand, and they're talking about Brecht, which I sort of understand a bit of, but but not, not perhaps as much as they do. Where, you know, how do we cr cross this, this bridge? And, and so I think when I realized we had different ways of sort of communicating, we actually had to then kind of find, we, we reverted quickly to sort of models and other forms whereby we could evolve a sort of common language and take, take the project, project forward. But it does require an absolute determination on the part of the architect and the artistic director. This is often mistaken as arrogance um, and I suppose it is a bit, but it's kind of ne necessary currency in order to be able to 
to, to, to drive the project forward. But I suppose in that sort of energy and that direction that's created through that, there's the very uh, welcome and, and necessary process of engaging with all the other people in theatre. Because we talk about the artistic directors because they sort of have this cultural status, but actually there are many, many people who, you know, there are the people that work the technical kit, the sound, and the lighting desks, there are people that manage the bars in the front of house, there are people that do the ticket sales, and everybody has a stake in the creation of this new project. And our kind of job is to sort of broker that and probably leave everybody slightly dissatisfied, and th but, but that's probably then the, the, the sort of sense the sense of an appropriate and, and, um, and, and reasonable judgment on, on the direction and, 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 the, and the form of the design. Julian, historically, whether with Elizabeth Scott or others, are there, are there client architect relationships that you would single out? Well, I I'm, do have to single out Elizabeth's with her, the artistic director of the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre, who just wanted to be an architect. And, you know, and he's got this girl who's got no experience I mean, really no experience, straight out of the Architectural Association. You know, and he thinks that by the time they've done their trip, you know, fact-finding trip around Germany to look at what was the best of new theatre in the, so we're talking about the very late 20s, um, you know, he'll have, he'll have kind of moulded her, you know, back into the uh, person that, uh, well, actually a completely subservient element within his strategy. But, but she doesn't do it. She, she sticks to her guns. So... That's that's quite a, an interesting sort of story because in a way that was her big, you know, she 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 worked very collaboratively in her own office with others who had greater experience, but she wasn't going to let this fellow just elbow his way in because he rather thought that it would behove him to be both architect and artistic director. That was not going to work. So. Richard, the role of the theatre consultant in, in these um, architect-client relationships, have you ever been the United Nations peacekeeper called in? <laughs> have you found yourselves in the middle somewhat? Uh, very often. <laughs> um, we did the um, Symphony Hall in Philadelphia with a rather notorious architect, Raphael Vanoli. He's been in the papers recently for his hot building in London. Um, Walkie Scorchy, I think it was called. Walkie Scorchy, that's right. Uh, we had an extremely problematic relationship from the, the acoustician and I versus the architect, which was a nightmare. And the client finally took us in a room, a wonderful man who died soon after, probably <laughs> through strain. He said, I'm sick to death of you bastards arguing with each other. <laughs> Richard, Russ, you're in charge of the theatre. Vanoli, you can do the outside. <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually what happened. Unfortunately, in Leicester, they were not so lucky. So Leicester, the big theatre, is a rather bad imitation of the Littleton, which is an extraordinary achievement to do it worse. <laughs> um, so that, yes, there are often misunderstandings and, and difficulties, but I think if I may, a larger historical perspective, the theatres of the National were, the, were designed at the end, of, in my view, of a very black period of theatre architecture, which began in the 20s, um, right through to the 70s. And it was people like Michael Elliott, Richard Negri, who designed the Royal Exchange, sure. who had a lot to do with Frank Dunlop, the young Vic, 
Theatre architectures change completely. Mm -hmm. I was responsible for the original Birmingham Rep, which I'm very ashamed of ever since. Um, <laughs> nobody would, everyone in the 60s was building single-tier auditoria, no of these stupid side boxes. We were all socially equal. Everyone had to be, you know, egalitarian. And this was where the National came from. Uh, Lasden's thinking and the whole committee's thinking here. I was there.